Emily, thank you for the opportunity that we have to share life together and to share your word together. So now as we open your word, we pray that you would speak. As we consider what you have told us in the scriptures about creation, would you help us to receive what you have for us this morning? Help us to respond with worship, with gratitude, with praise, and we pray that we would honor you with the way that we live in this world. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for equipping us with your spirit. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Kiddos can go on over to junior church now. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. This first line of the Apostles' Creed begins to identify the God we worship with an initial threefold description. He is Father, both Eternal Father in relationship with the Eternal Son, and also Father in relationship to believers whom He has adopted. He is Almighty omnipotent, all-powerful, supreme, ultimate, and he is the personal creator of everything that exists, heaven, the invisible realm, and all of its other inhabitants besides God himself, and earth, this planet with all of its inhabitants and all the things required for the earth's continued functionality. The phrase heaven and earth can be a figurative expression called a merism, With a merism, two extremes are mentioned with the intention of including everything in between those two extremes as well. Thus, heaven and earth leaves nothing out. All things, visible and invisible, spiritual and material, were made by God. Why should we study creation? And I mean that question in two ways. Why should we study what God has created? And why should we study what God has said about what he has created. We should study creation in order to get to know the creator better. We spent three weeks examining Genesis 1 together, and then last week we zoomed in on the creation of humanity as God's image and sought clarity on humanity's important role from the broader testimony of Scripture. At every point, we've traced threads to Jesus Christ, seeking to emphasize the point that creation ultimately exists for him, to point to him. As one writer puts it, take Christ out of the picture and the universe appears all dressed up with nowhere to go. This morning we'll revisit some of what we've already seen, but we're stepping out of the book of Genesis entirely. The sermon title is a play on the Latin phrase, creatio ex nihilo. This is the label often given to the Christian doctrine of creation. The phrase translates into English as creation, out of nothing. The Latin word ex is a preposition, meaning out of. The Latin preposition extra means outside. Thus, the sermon title this morning is Creatio Extra Genesis, or Creation Outside of Genesis. Let's consider the question, what could we learn about creation from the Bible if we didn't have the book of Genesis? 
Now, I realize that the other biblical authors are usually reflecting on the text of Genesis, but you may be surprised to see how differently they express themselves at times. You may also be surprised at just how much the biblical authors affirm, and we may discover together how wonderfully unified the scriptures are and how richly enhanced our understanding of creation can be. One caveat, we will be mostly leaving out humanity. We'll have occasions in the coming weeks to consider what the Bible teaches about the creation of humanity outside of Genesis, but that will require an entire sermon or two. We're going to consider this morning four overarching questions about creation. How did God create? What did God create? Why did God create? And what about figurative descriptions of creation? And we'll draw answers to each question from Scripture outside of Genesis. We won't be exhaustive since some of the answers are repeated in different places in Scripture, but we will be covering a lot of Scripture this morning. Let's begin by considering how God created. How, we shall address this question from ten angles. How did God create? First, God created out of nothing. God existed always, apart from time, space, and matter. Hebrews 11.3 is probably our clearest, clearest biblical statement of this truth, though it is stated negatively. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, hypothetically, we could suppose that perhaps God made what is seen out of things that are invisible. But when we bring this text into conversation with other texts, that won't do. In Romans 4.17, Paul describes God as the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. In context, Paul is discussing God's giving a baby to lifelong childless parents, Abraham and Sarah, so that Abraham would become a father of nations. But more particularly, Paul is explaining why Abraham could believe God's promise that he would do such a wildly impossible thing. Abraham could believe that God would keep his promises because he is the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. And the only frame of reference for such a description would be creation. A third text solidifies the truth that God created out of nothing. John 1.3, speaking of the Word, who is the eternal Son of God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The statement is comprehensive, all-encompassing, and emphatic. If something is in the category of made, then it was made by God through the Word. That Word became flesh and tabernacled among humans for a time, but He existed prior to heaven, prior to earth, prior to anything in the universe, and He was actively involved in creating it all. God created out of nothing. Second, God created in six days. Famously, as a reason for the Sabbath commandment in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20.11 we read, For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. We'll return to a discussion of this passage and its significance for our understanding of Genesis next Sunday. For now, let's merely observe that the text makes a simple, straightforward statement here of what Yahweh did. If we didn't have Genesis 1 and 2, there would be no biblical reason to question whether the days of creation were not normal 24-hour days. And it is hard for me to imagine any Israelite hearing the commandment for the first time, 
that they would have thought of anything other than that God, the God of Israel, really did create everything that exists over a period of time, measured simply and straightforwardly as six days. Now, some folks want to see this as evidence of God's creating over a six-day work week, followed by a rest day, being a literary analogy. God's work of creation is presented by the analogy of an ordinary six-day work week. However, Exodus 20.11 pushes the analogy the other way. The reason Israelites were to follow a six-day work week, which seems to have been unique in the ancient world, was by analogy to God's original six-day work week. Even outside Genesis, the Bible's indication that God created over a sequence of ordinary days situates God's acts of creation firmly within history, unlike every other ancient creation account. Third, God created out of water and through water. As Genesis 1 narrates the account, over the course of days 2 and 3, God separates the waters of creation. Peter seems to comment on this reality in 2 Peter 3, 5. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Peter's interest in water is likely because of where he's heading in his argument as he's about to contrast God's universal judgment flood in the past with his final universal judgment fire in the future. Peter implies that the planet's initial state was a watery mass, which God then formed by bringing up the dry land in the midst of the waters, and he directed the process of formation by speaking. He brings this up to oppose the argument of some false teachers who would suggest that Jesus is not going to return soon, based on their observation that all things are continuing as they have been from the beginning of creation. Peter counters the faulty premise by reminding them that the beginning of creation was a watery mass, much different than the world we live in today. And then he'll add that God had used those same waters of creation to execute judgment on the world so that the world that then existed perished or was destroyed. So Peter points back to historical interventions of God that radically changed the world in order to show that the false teacher's assumption that all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation is wrong. While it's not in Peter's purview, such a challenge needs to be remembered by those who bring uniformitarian assumptions to the work of scientific exploration as well. Peter refers to God creating the earth out of water and through water, as well as a global flood, as historical events that prove that the world as we see it today is not as it has always been. God has intervened in history in a variety of ways, and He has changed the course of the world, and arguably He's changed the nature of the world. Fourth, God created everything good. This is stated simply in 1 Timothy 4.4, for everything created by God is good. Paul is specifically thinking about food here, but he states the principle absolutely. In the context, he also is opposing false teachers who forbid marriage. So the originally created goodness of marriage may also be specifically in view, but in any case, God created everything good. Next, we begin to consider texts that speak more directly of how God created. In other words, the next few will be framed as God created by. 
statements. So fifth, God created by his power. This seems like it goes without saying, but three separate occasions in Jeremiah speak to this explicitly. For example, Jeremiah begins praying in Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord Yahweh, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. This prayer of Jeremiah is a beautiful text, worth studying in depth, but I'll restrain my comments this morning. He praises the Lord for exercising His power in creation, and then in the Exodus, and then in the conquest of Canaan, and then in the Babylonian exile. And Jeremiah is struggling to believe, to hope, that God's promises of bringing the exiled Jews out of Babylon will come true. But the Lord stretches out His arm in judgment and salvation, and He stretched out His arm in creation, figuratively speaking. God's great power is immeasurable, and He demonstrated that nothing is too hard for Him, first and foremost, by creating everything. Sixth, God created by His wisdom. We considered this in detail in our Proverbs study recently, but other texts testify of this as well. For example, Psalm 104.24 says, O Yahweh, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. God's wisdom is evident in the order of creation. Even in this fallen, broken world, we can still perceive God's created order. God created by His wisdom. Similarly, seventh, God created by His understanding. Psalm 136.5 praises Him who, by understanding, made the heavens. The idea of intelligent design is fundamentally biblical. A sky that functions as ours does, not to mention the laws of gravity and other physical matters that make life possible in this world, demands a comprehensive, universal understanding. We could, of course, extend this beyond the physical, recognizing that God created the universe understanding everything that would happen in the future. His understanding combined with His wisdom reflects His great plan. So it is that God created by His omniscient understanding. Eighth, God created by His will. In Revelation 4, 11, 24 elders are heard praising God on His throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This reminds us of the basic reason why God has chosen to tell us these things about creation, to stir our worship. It is a basic expression of His will, that everything came into existence. He chose to enact His will through His Word. Thus, ninth, God created by His Word. This, the first part of Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. We saw this in 2 Peter 3.5. Paul indicated it in Romans 4.17. And the psalmist repeatedly marveled over this truth. God spoke. And time, space, and matter came into existence. He spoke, and the material He had already spoken into existence moved around and changed into what He wanted it to be. We believe this because the Bible tells us so. Finally, God created through and for the Son of God. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The Son of God is the heir of all things because he created all things. He was the active agent of creation, and he is the rightful ruler of all creation. So, to pull it all together, without reading Genesis... (laughs) we can conclude that God created out of nothing, in six days, out of water and through water, everything good by His power, His wisdom, His understanding, His will, and His word, and through and for the Son of God. Now, let's consider some specific answers to what God created. The Bible, outside of Genesis, presents us with at least seven ways to answer the question. What did God create? First, God created everything. In Acts 4.24, in addition to other texts we've already seen, the disciples address God in prayer, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In their worldview, heaven, earth, and sea includes everything in conceptual existence. And as we saw in Colossians 1.16, this includes everything we can see and everything we can't see. Physical entities and spiritual entities. God created absolutely everything. Second, God created specifically light and darkness. In Isaiah 45, 7, the Lord says, I form light and create darkness. The word translated form is a word we haven't encountered in Genesis 1, but it will appear three times in Genesis 2. Isaiah is particularly fond of this word. It describes the work of a potter or a craftsman. Here, the Lord focuses on light and darkness in the midst of a longer message reminding His people of His utter uniqueness. His creation and control of nature lies in the background, while the accent is laid upon how He has created and guided His people. This is all presented in Isaiah as Yahweh's self-introduction to the Persian king Cyrus, whom the Lord would use to bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. Addressed to Cyrus, but recorded for Israel, categories of creation and redemption are poetically merged and overlaid in a way that draws attention to Yahweh's praiseworthy uniqueness, His absolute creative power, and His good intentions for His people. What Yahweh creates, that He also controls. Thus, light and darkness continue in their alternation by God's direction and intention. Time is in His hands. Third, God created the waters above the sky. Psalm 148, 4 and 5 says, Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let let them praise the name of Yahweh, for He commanded and they were created. The psalmist addresses the highest heavens. The phrase is literally, the heavens of heavens. By addressing the place, poetically, the psalmist intends to address the inhabitants of that place. Thus, he is inviting all the heaven dwellers, angelic beings, to praise Yahweh. Then he addresses the waters above the heavens. We discussed the possible physical realities this phrase could refer to a couple of weeks ago. This verse is one biblical reason most creationists have abandoned the once popular view that these waters referred to a kind of vapor canopy that was depleted and destroyed during the flood. The psalmist still recognizes these waters in his lifetime. 
We consider the possibility that these waters refer to rainwater as it is stored in the clouds. As the psalmist looks up, he calls on the rainwater itself to praise Yahweh. The psalmist will continue calling on aspects of inanimate nature to praise Yahweh, as in verse 8, he mentions fire and hail, snow and mist, and stormy wind. And he indicates that their praise is offered as they are fulfilling his word. Verse 5 celebrates the reality that God commanded, he spoke, and the heavenly realm and everything in it, and the waters held up by the sky, in the sky, obeyed his creative command. Likewise, fourth, God created the sea and the dry land. Psalm 95.5 says, The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The people of ancient cultures tended to fear and or worship the sea. Its power was humanly untamable, and many people died at sea. But the psalmist recognizes that the sea belongs to Yahweh. It is not to be dreaded or worshipped. It is merely one of God's creations. Likewise, the land on which people make their homes and live was formed by God. The poetic reference to God's hands, in combination with the word formed, depicts God's creation of land as the work of a potter at his pottery wheel. Out of the watery mass, God shaped and situated dry land where and how he wanted. Fifth, God created the sun, moon, and stars. The heavenly bodies that we see in the sky were regularly worshipped in the ancient world. Generally, people probably didn't actually believe that the sun was a deity, but they regularly professed belief that there was a personal deity who guided the movement of the sun, and they would give credit to a sun god for the heat and light that the sun provides for people. The Bible tends to lump sun, moon, and stars together as the heavenly host. For example, Isaiah 40, 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. The Lord summons people to look up in the sky and he takes credit for creating all of the heavenly bodies, for bringing them out, directing them to shine and to take the positions that they have and he even summons them by name. Now, given the poetry... I don't know whether we need to believe that God has a specific name for each individual star in the universe. He certainly could, but the point is that he governs them completely. Sixth, God created humanity and all animals. In Jeremiah 27, 5, the Lord says, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. The word translated the men is singular, Adam, a collective reference to humanity as a whole. The word for animals is the typical word for land animals specifically, but like our English word animals, it can be a generic label for all non-human living creatures. In context, the Lord brings this up here in order to assert his right to move people wherever he wants and to give dominion to whomever he wants. Since he made the planet and the occupants of the planet, he has the right to move those inhabitants around, shift the balance of powers, and elevate or bring down any nation. Thus, the Jewish people of Jeremiah's day need to recognize that it is Yahweh alone who has ultimately brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to power and enabled them to conquer Judah. 
Finally, seventh, God created the angelic host of heaven. We've already considered Colossians 1.16, but let's look at it once more. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The kinds of rulers and authorities Paul has in mind are almost certainly, specifically, angelic rulers and authorities. In Ephesians 6.12, he'll clarify the rulers and authorities he has in mind as the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But that is to focus on the negative, the fallen, rebellious, angelic beings. There is one other place in Scripture that might speak specifically of the angelic host of heaven being created by God, but it's a bit ambiguous. As Nehemiah prays in Nehemiah 9.6, he says, You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Given the reference to the heaven of heavens, which is certainly referring to heaven with a capital H, the invisible place where God lives, the reference to all their host probably means the host of spiritual beings who also live in heaven, angels, cherubim, seraphim, things like that. So in the broad sweep of Scripture, outside of Genesis, we learn that God created all things, including specifically light and darkness, rainwater, land and sea, sun, moon, and stars, humans and animals, and angelic beings. Now let's consider why God created. We actually don't get a clear statement, as far as I can tell, of an overarching purpose for God creating everything, other than what we saw in Colossians 1.16, that God created everything for His Son. Theologians have generalized this into statements of Him creating for His own glory, or creating to provide an inheritance for His Son, or creating to provide a bride for His Son, or some combination of those things. And I think these are appropriate theological conclusions, but there are three passages that speak of God's purpose for a particular part of creation. And I think it'll be helpful to see God's design in those statements. First, in Isaiah 45, 18, the prophet indicates that the Lord created the earth to be inhabited. For thus says Yahweh, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. With this unique purpose statement in view, It's hard to accept the scientific and theological perspectives that suggest that the earth might have existed for millions of years before it was actually inhabited. And if, as seems likely, Isaiah is particularly thinking of the earth's being inhabited by human beings, then it seems even more far-fetched that the earth would have existed for billions of years before it was inhabited by God's image. When Isaiah says that God did not create the earth empty, he uses the Hebrew word tohu which we saw in Genesis 1-2, describing the initial state of the planet as indeed empty. The earth started as a watery mass, devoid of life and order. God's acts of creation go beyond merely bringing things into existence. He also spoke over the course of six days in order to structure the watery mass and make it a habitation for His people. He prepared a place for His people. His creation was purposeful with humanity in view. Thus, he created the earth to be inhabited by people who would know and worship him. That purpose was not abandoned when humanity rebelled. 
The new creation pictured for us in Revelation 21 and 22 shows what it means that God formed the earth to be inhabited. Second, God created the sun, moon, and stars to rule day and night. Psalm 136 praises God because of this. Psalm 136 is structured as a kind of responsive reading where the congregation was supposed to shout for his steadfast love endures forever after the leader makes an affirmation of God's praiseworthiness based on something he did. As we look at these verses, I'll leave out the congregational response. Thus, the psalmist instructs the congregation to give thanks, verse 7, to him who made the great lights, verse 8, the sun to rule over the day, verse 9, the moon and stars to rule over the night. We are to praise God because he created the sun to govern the measurement of time during the day and because he created the moon and stars to govern the measurement of time during the night. Of course, there are other purposes for the sun, moon, and stars, but the psalmist zooms in on this fundamental function. The psalmist personifies the sun as a ruler, a king who rules by shining light during the day so that the people of earth can work, and so that plant life on earth can thrive. Likewise, the psalmist personifies the moon and stars as a kind of ruling council that rules by shining light during the night, so that the people of earth need not be in total darkness, and so that the people of earth can measure the passing of time and get the rest that they need as well. But in another text, the moon is highlighted for another purpose. God created the moon to mark the seasons. Psalm 104, 19 says simply, He made the moon to mark the seasons. Thus, the position of the moon relative to earth is useful for people to measure the passage of time, to develop calendars, and to schedule holidays. Here is something we all take for granted. The moon's relationship to this planet still structures our scheduling and our measurement of time, but we hardly ever think of it. We have calendars drawn in grids, and the internet can always tell us what day it is. And very few of us pay close attention to the the position of the moon at night in order to determine what day it is, nor do we give the moon a second thought in the planning of our futures. As simplified as our lives are because of automated scheduling, digital clocks, and calendars, The fact that they are accurate is dependent on God's having created the moon to mark the appointed times. These three purposes for creation are small scale. They are human-focused. That simply means that they are not ultimate. Theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote a book entitled The End for Which God Created the World, in which he argued that all that is ever spoken of in Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. My aim in this section of the sermon is more focused to consider texts in Scripture that explicitly speak of God's purposes in His acts of creation. But yes, Edwards is surely correct. To round out our discussion of creation outside of Genesis, I'd like to consider several passages of Scripture that describe creation with figurative language. Many poetic passages in the Old Testament refer to creation, and I found it helpful to reflect on the meaning of the images. We'll consider three sets of passages, passages that describe God's creation of the heavens or the sky, passages that describe God's creation of the earth or the land, and passages that describe God's creation of the seas or the depths. First, let's look at three passages that describe God's creation of the heavens or the sky. 
The first verse we'll consider uses the image of God stretching out the sky like a curtain and spreading it out like a tent. Several passages use this image, but we'll just look at one that combines both together. In Isaiah 40, 22, the prophet points to Yahweh as the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. The reference to the heavens may be intended to include the visible sky and the invisible realm in which God lives. One commentator defines the imagery effectively as God stretched out the vast heavens like a fine cloth, just like a person might stretch netting over the poles of a tent. Isaiah's point may well be to celebrate that God has created a place that he may dwell among his people. The picture is of God pitching a tent in heaven with a capital H, while also spreading a curtain or veil that maintains a separation between the inside of his tent and the outside. Thus, the poetry is not intended to indicate any kind of mechanism describing how God created the sky or heaven. Rather, the point is to paint a poetic picture of an original connection between heaven and earth, emphasizing God's intention of dwelling with his people as though we were all camping out together. Another poetic text which describes God's creation of the sky is Proverbs 8.28, which we looked at a few weeks ago. We did not comment on this line, however, when he made firm the skies above. As you may recall, personified Lady Wisdom is speaking, claiming to have been an eyewitness observer to God's acts of creation. So she describes what she saw in poetic form. While the word translated the skies often does seem to refer generically to the visible sky above, the word is also used frequently to refer specifically to clouds. The word translated made firm simply means to strengthen. Thus, Lady Wisdom probably describes the reality that God initially created the clouds in the sky and they were strong in the sense that they didn't fall out of the sky. Given that she next comments on the waters of the seas not being allowed to go beyond their God-defined limits, Lady Wisdom may instead of that be pointing to the clouds being made strong in the sense that God designed the clouds to hold the waters above. They're strong enough to hold on to those waters and only drop them in rainfall when, where, and to what extent God commands. One final poetic text must be mentioned, but it may not actually have any relevance to our topic this morning. In Job 37, 18, Elihu, the fourth interrogator of Job, asks him, Can you, like him, like God, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? I bring this verse up because it is often brought into discussions of Genesis, whereby some theologians suggest that this indicates that Israelites believed that God created the sky as a solid dome, just as the Egyptians or Babylonians around them seem to have believed. The word translated spread out is the verb form of the noun rakia, which was used in Genesis 1 to refer to the expanse, sometimes translated the firmament, above uh, that God created on day two intended to be the separator between the waters above and the waters below. The word translated skies, however, is the same word we just discussed from Proverbs 8.28, probably referring to clouds specifically. 
The verb spread out usually refers to hammering out a thin sheet of metal. And indeed, Elihu compares the skies or the clouds to a cast metal mirror. It seems likely to me, however, that Elihu is not referring to creation at all here. Instead, he is actually describing how God controls the rain, sometimes refusing to allow rainfall as a form of judgment against people. Thus, God, in His wrath, can hammer out the clouds, solidifying them so that they don't release their water. The clouds then, figuratively, are like a cast metal mirror, which instead of providing refreshing rain, may trap heat from the sun, making it feel hotter on the earth. Thus, the New Living Translation probably has it right as it translates the verse, He makes the skies reflect the heat like a bronze mirror. Well, what about the earth or the land? We have six figurative descriptions to consider. First, some passages speak of God spreading out the earth, using the same word we saw in relation to the hammering out of the clouds in Job. In Isaiah 42.5, Yahweh is described as the one who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Thus, Yahweh is being pictured as a metal worker laying out a chunk of metal on his anvil, applying the right amount of heat and hammering it out, chipping away edges, smoothening and flattening it out so that it takes the shape he intends it to have. The imagery is focused on characterizing the creator, not so much creation itself. A second and far more common image is of the foundations of the earth being laid. In Proverbs 8.29, Lady Wisdom watched as Yahweh marked out the foundations of the earth. And in Isaiah 48.13, Yahweh says, My hand laid the foundation of the earth. When we read about the earth being founded, or the foundations of the earth, the biblical authors are using metaphorical language. They are comparing the earth to either a city or a temple, or perhaps both. Proverbs 8 describes God marking out the foundations of the earth as though he were a city planner or an architect, drawing out the plans for the boundaries of the city. And Isaiah speaks of him laying the foundation of the earth as though he poured the concrete slab on which the structure would be built. If the all-powerful Lord of the universe laid the foundations of the earth, then surely those foundations are going to be sturdy so that the earth could never be overturned without his approval. Similarly, we can take a quick look at a third related image, that of the cornerstone being laid. In Job 38.6, the Lord asks Job, Who laid its cornerstone? This is just after he asked Job in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So the Lord is already working with the metaphor of the earth as a temple building. And he adds to that image, speaking of the earth's cornerstone. As earlier, we read about God comparing the creation of the heavens to that of a tent. So here, God compares the creation of earth to a building, probably a temple building in particular. The point of mentioning a cornerstone is to emphasize both the planning and the resultant stability of the earth. A builder carefully chooses a cornerstone. It must be just the right size, just the right material, and positioned just right so that it will determine the size and the direction of the building. It is God alone who set the foundation, who set the direction and established the stability of this planet. Job needs to understand that God might have bigger plans for his life than he can fully fathom. For a fourth image, we return to the waters 
While we would not normally think of a temple building or any other building having its foundations in the ocean, David seems to envision creation like this. In Psalm 24, 1 and 2, we read, The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David's poetry here is rich. As he reflects on Genesis 1 and 2, he captures the picture of the inhabitable planet being drawn up out of the watery mass that was Earth's original state. But he doesn't provide a narrative telling exactly how God did that. Rather, he depicts the Earth's founding as being tightly connected to seas and rivers. As the imagery of the founding of Earth might bring to mind the founding of a temple building, David's psalm continues by asking, Who is qualified? to ascend the hill of Yahweh, to stand in his holy place. Consider then David's logic. Yahweh owns the whole earth and everything and everyone in it because he created it all. Who then in all the earth can come close to this awesome creator? Who can worship in his holy temple? If the whole earth is part of his temple, then the question might be rephrased as, who can live with Yahweh? The initial answer David gives is not encouraging. Look at verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Well, count me out and count David out too. But David continues in verse 5. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from God, from the God of His salvation. The word receive is gospel gold. The second object of that verb is crucial. Righteousness. The God who created the earth as part of His temple, laying its foundations in the midst of the waters, offers to give unclean, impure sinners righteousness as a gift. All who receive this gift may ascend the hill uh, of Yahweh and stand in his holy place. David depicts justification by grace in Psalm 24, 5. Returning to the creation imagery, we have two more to look at. Fifth, in Job 38, 5, the Lord asks Job to identify who stretched the line upon it. This is again construction imagery. Yahweh is depicting himself as the divine builder who has carefully measured in order to determine the dimensions of this planet. Again, the earth is not viewed as just any building, but a temple building, or at least part of a temple building. The Lord didn't literally pull out a tape measure during his work of creation, and he, but he did carefully plan and define the physical dimensions of this planet and of the universe. Even with our technological advances today, we have no ability to accurately measure all that God created. Scientists will keep trying, but I expect humans will never become sufficiently sophisticated to identify the physical dimensions of the universe. Even if we could put the right number of zeros and use a comprehensible unit of measurement, what human among us could actually grasp the scope? We have one final image to consider before returning to the waters. It's in the next verse in Job 38. 
Yahweh asks Job, on what were its bases sunk? Now remember, Yahweh is presenting himself to Job as the great temple builder. He is describing his acts of creating the earth in terms of humans building temples. Thus, we should pause before we jump to the conclusion that the text is simply describing the world the way ancient people naively understood it to exist. Yahweh is the great temple builder, and the earth was part of a great construction project. In fact, as commentator Christopher Ash suggests, in these verses in Job, God is the architect who designed it, the surveyor who laid it all out in accordance with his design, and the builder who constructed it. The sinking down of the bases considers the foundation from another angle. Sinking down footers deep into the ground would help secure a building, especially while it was under construction. However, the point being communicated is that God has guaranteed the security and stability of the earth. Job needs to get who he's dealing with. Now, as we revisit the waters one last time, we have four more poetic descriptions to consider. First, we return to Lady Wisdom's words in Proverbs 8.27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. With Genesis 1 in mind, the phrase, on the face of the deep, is the exact same phrase describing where God's Spirit was hovering on day one of creation. Lady Wisdom is probably describing what God did to the deep, that is the waters, on days two and three. On day two, God separated the waters above from the waters below, and on day three, God separated the waters from the land. Lady Wisdom poetically describes this as God drawing a circle circumscribing the watery mass, bisecting it with the expanse that would be the sky. Job 26.10 is similar. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. Likewise, Isaiah 40.22 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Now, creationists need to be careful here. Seeing the imagery of a circle, creationists have suggested that the Bible communicates a scientific understanding of the earth's shape before scientific exploration ever discovered such a reality. This is poetry, not a literal description. In Proverbs 8.27, God is being depicted as a carpenter or a craftsman who uses a tool like a compass to plan out how he is going to cut the material and then actually do so in separating the waters. From a human observer's vantage point, all that may be depicted in these passages is the visible curvature of the sky. As the visible sky is understood to be the separator between God's created waters, then one can trace the outline of the sky from horizon to horizon in a curved arc. The author can use the term circle, recognizing the overall shape of the whole. The original readers do not seem to be, have recognized this as an indication that the planet is spherical. So we today should be cautious in claiming that 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 is what it means. 
Alternatively, it is possible that these texts are all written from the vantage point of a person standing on land. Looking around, such a person would seem to be standing at the center of a great circle. Not sphere, circle. And the sky provides the outline or the border around the whole thing. Thus, the picture that might have come to mind for the original readers with this phraseology might have been as if they were standing inside of a snow globe. The flat surface, the land, is a circular disk, and the sky above appears to be cover a covering dome. However, none of these three passages is written to explain the shape of the planet. Each of them is focused on God himself as the creator. So let's not get distracted by trying to, answer, trying to get the text to answer the wrong questions, questions that it's not interested in addressing. Now, back in Proverbs 8 we get our next image. In the second line of verse 28, Lady Wisdom claims to have been there when he established the fountains of the deep. This phrase will be featured in the flood account as these fountains will break open. Lady Wisdom describes God making them strong or prevailing over them, establishing them. As God separated the waters so that the dry land would appear, there remained water underneath the surface of the ground. And Lady Wisdom indicates God's control over how those waters would function. We may view these, potentially, as the source of the mist that will water the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, if that's what's being described. Or we may assume that they remain totally underground until God acts to break them open in His judgment on the world. We shall see. A third image appears representing God's creative action with regard to the waters in Job 9.8. Job describes God as the one who trampled the waves of the sea. As the previous line describes God stretching out the heavens, we should probably see a reference here to God's creative separation of the waters again. God is being depicted as stomping on the waters of the sea, as though they might otherwise break out and flow wherever they want to go. In fact, that is an image that comes up again and again in the Bible. The sea becomes associated with death and violence. As we saw earlier, the sea was viewed as a chaotic place that humanity could not master. But God walks over the waves. As He separates the waters above from the waters below, He makes sure that the waters below stay put. Proverbs 8 had described how he set firm limits for the sea that it cannot transgress. Job uses a different image to convey the same idea. It's wonderful to recall at this point that Jesus walked on the waves of the stormy sea of Galilee, terrifying his disciples initially, but thereby demonstrating his sovereign authority as master and commander of the unruly seas. Along similar lines, in Job 38, we read about God establishing those limits on the seas. Yahweh is addressing Job, and he says in verses 8 to 11, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Here, the Lord impresses Job with his control of the seas. He depicts the seas as a newborn baby. God is pictured as a parent 
locking the seas down, putting the baby in timeout, since it was throwing a tantrum, dressing it in its bedtime onesie. In other ancient cultures, the sea is depicted as a great enemy that the gods must conquer in order to successfully create, or as an evil god itself. Commentator Tremper Longman observes, by contrast, in this passage, though, the sea seems not like an enemy, but like a rambunctious toddler. God is able to control the newborn sea, clothing it and putting up boundaries. Well, we've taken a wild tour of Scripture outside of Genesis to learn about creation. The doctrine of creation entails a number of implications. Some of them come forth in, have come forth in earlier sermons. This morning, I'd simply like to ask the music team to return to the stage and to lead us in worship in response to what we've heard this morning. So please come on up, music team. and um, We want to worship our awesome God because He's been presented to us that way in creation. And so I encourage you to sing with all that you have. So if you'd stand and join us, we want to sing praise to our awesome God this morning. So please stand and the music team will lead us. <laughs> 